back to Sanchiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. I'm very excited to be back today talking about Redbeard from 1965. Yes, movie that I've been wanting to see for a very long time, since the seventh grade, which, if you don't know me, is nine or ten or eleven years ago. Yeah, something like that. Because I don't know me either. Let me say, after seeing it now, I'm glad I didn't watch it then. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this is a movie for 13-year-olds. Like, I like 2001, even when I was 13, I don't think I would have liked this. <laughs> like, this is, a, this is something. This is based on a book by Shugoro Yamamoto. I believe it's a compilation of short stories called The Tales of Dr. Redbeard. And he's the author of the original Sanjiro. And so after Kurosawa made High and Low, he just wound up picking up another one of this guy's books and became so enveloped with this story, or I guess the stories within it, that as he wrote the screenplay, he wasn't originally going to direct it. And then he was like, no, I have to direct it. And he really wanted this one specifically to be something really important that people would want to go and see. It makes sense that it's based on a collection of short stories. I kind of, you get that feel, or at least I got that feeling when I was watching it. Yeah, I felt like this movie actually feels more like a TV series almost, like condensed into three hours. It is a very episodic movie, and it has like two overarching arcs for the same character. One is fulfilled at like a mid-season finale, and then the other one is fulfilled at the finale. Yeah, it even has like an intermission that like marks off two halves of the movie that are both about the same character kind of going through similar things. The intermission at two hours, not even like an hour and a half in. It's I know. Two thirds intermission. I got to the intermission. I was like, oh, shit, there's still got to be so much left. <laughs> Just like 2001. 2001's intermission is in like the middle of the third out of four acts. But one big change from the novel is the addition of the 12 year old prostitute Otoyo, who I'm sure we'll talk about a lot. She's not in the novel, but she's based on a Dostoevsky character, Nelly, from The Insulted and Injured. I don't know if you know anything about that book. No, I haven't read that book because the only Dostoevsky book I've read is The Idiot for this. She does stand out as like a little bit different than the rest of the movie, so it makes sense that she's like drawn from a different source. You just kind of combine them both into this one. I do think that she fits in with it well. Oh, yeah, yeah. They just like, she has so much more significance than the other characters that like it makes sense that it's, you know, from something else. But no, yeah, no, she fits very well. She like is the second act. And we're lucky that that girl looks consistently her age because this production took two whole years almost to complete. This was a very long and troubled production. A lot of problems with filming, like a lot of complicated shots, a lot of sickness. Kurosawa got sick twice and Mifune and Yamada got sick once each. I was like, oh great, yeah, they're already in the hospital. <laughs> Another reason this movie took so long is Kurosawa is very well known for his slavish demand for historical accuracy. And this one, he goes really far. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I didn't know anything about this going in. I, the, I like read briefly in the Criterion description that it was very period accurate, and I was like, okay, sure. It's crazy. It crosses the border of obsessive. Let me read you a couple examples here. <laughs> so, the main set was really an entire town with back alleys and side streets, some of which were never filmed. The roof tiles on the buildings were taken off of century-old buildings. That strikes me as completely unnecessary, gone. <laughs> the houses were made out of the oldest available lumber that they could get from farmhouses in the area. And then they have to age the wood further, so the houses are built out of wood that's going to be like 160, 200 years old. But like, why? <laughs> All the costumes and props were aged for months. The cabinets, some of which are never even opened, are full of medicine and tools that are expensive. And I think this is the craziest one, is the bedding that they make for this movie is made, you know, in the Tokugawa period patterns, which makes sense. This is set in the middle of the 19th century, and it was actually slept on for up to half a year before shooting. So we had people sleeping on these to make sure that they were, like, tamped down correctly. Why? <laughs> 
like who that in the age would get me the other thing is again it's a period piece it takes place you know 100 years before when it was filmed but was the stuff old then in the time that it was taking place like i was thinking that i mean i think probably i guess it's like a shitty old hospital or whatever yeah it's definitely a rundown area but it's ridiculous but i can't really argue with the results but again a very tumultuous film and we'll talk about it later but this is the end of a lot of things this really is the end of an era this is the last collaboration of akira kurosawa and toshiro mifune which is insane he's been in like every movie that we've seen for weeks and it's also going to be the last black and white film. Every subsequent film, even the weird TV movie documentary poem thing that we're going to talk about, is also in color. He's shooting here with an experimental brand new type of film. He's shooting on like 500 millimeter lenses sometimes. There are shots that are like over someone's shoulder and they're actually like mounted to the ceiling. And it doesn't even look it because the lens is going so far. Kurosawa always likes to shoot with really long lenses and use a ton of light to make it show up to account for the differences. I noticed the ton of light, I noticed the crispness, I noticed how obscenely, like, deep the focus was. Just, like, things that were, like, a mile away in focus for, like, no reason. Yeah, it's like every time someone opens a window, it's like you're seeing out into this entire town, and that town is real. Yeah, the town is real, and it's really far away, and it's still just, like, crisp as hell, way in the back. <laughs> this one scene where they're just, like, walking through, and I was just, like, looking in the background, like, why can I see so far away? Like, I think in real life I'd be able to perceive things, like, this far away. It's an incredibly realistic feeling movie. He's got a new Vortrack sound system for the first time in any of these, so he's able to even have more to play with audio. Yeah, that's cool. It's nice that he's like always pushing the envelope even now. He really tried hard with this, and I mean, we'll get into it. I think that this really is like a manifesto for him of like every technique, everything he ever believed in, all of his humanism put into this film, giving Toshiro Mifune now a mentor role. Something very nice about it is thinking back to Drunken Angel, where he's starring opposite of Takashi Shimura, who's being a benevolent doctor there, and then now he ends his career being that benevolent doctor himself. I think it's just a really nice little touch, maybe unintentional. Based on the way he uses his actors, I would say he was at least a little bit aware of it. It makes sense for this to be Shoshiro Mifune's last film, even if there are like other reasons. You know, it really does feel like a passing the torch film, even if he's not passing it to anyone specifically. In theory, would be passing it to Tatsuya Nakadai, who's been in the last couple, but not in this one. Despite the fact this movie is called Redbeard, it's not about Redbeard exactly. It's a lot more about Noboru Yasumoto. I was thinking about that, but I don't know what I would title this otherwise. Yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Yasumoto is nothing. Like, <laughs> I think Redbeard's a good title. It's just like, it really is more about Dr. Noboru Yasumoto. Yeah, Redbeard is definitely not the main character, but he's really the only character that doesn't change. He is the constant. He's kind of already reached the end of his arc before Yasumoto ever gets here. You know, I've been calling Toshiro Mifune Mr. Too Damn Honorable since Drunken Angel. <laughs> well, this takes it to a whole new insane level. Yeah, this is Dr. Too Damn yeah, Honorable. Yeah, Dr. Too Damn Honorable, the most honorable doctor in history. But like, totally believable. I love it. Really good role for him. Oh, yeah. A great last role. Definitely. Guess we should uh, get into the plot. In the 19th century, arrogant young doctor Noboru Yasumoto hopes to make an easy living as the shogunate's personal physician, but is shocked to find himself assigned to a clinic run by Dr. Kyojo Niide, also known as Redbeard. The clinic treats many impoverished patients for little reward, which prompts Yasumoto to try and get himself fired. After seeing the ugly side of his profession and hearing the tragic stories of several patients, Yasumoto embraces his situation and works to better the lives of others. Redbeard assigns him to treat Atoyo, a 12-year-old girl saved from a local brothel. Soon, Yasumoto himself becomes sick, so Atoyo helps nurse him in turn. Atoyo befriends Chobo, a young boy who periodically steals food from the clinic. His family drinks poison after learning that Chobo is a thief, but the boy is saved by the doctors. 
Yasumoto weds Masei, the sister of his former fiancé, and he is finally offered the job of the Shogunate's doctor, but he refuses in order to stay at Redbeard's clinic and continue to make a difference. And uh, let it be said that the part of the plot summary where we say uh, he sees the ugly side of this profession and he hears the tragic stories of his patients, that's about an hour and a half, two hours of the movie. Yeah, it's like the whole thing before intermission, which intermission comes an hour and 53 minutes into the movie, which I was like, oh, jeez. But I was like worried that it would get very boring or just be too long to like focus because, you know, I have some troubles focusing on movies, but the movie kept my attention the whole way through, despite being three hours and not a particularly action-packed or anything film. Absolutely. But there is one great action scene. There is one we'll talk about it later. insane action scene. I think that this movie is incredibly grabbing. I'll spoil my hand up front. I really, really love this one a lot. The thing I think is so great about it is that it actually is very efficient, even though it's so long. It just has so much story in it. He uses all this time to really develop all these characters so well. And like everybody except for Redbeard is so different by the end. You get so many different stories, so many new feelings for different people, and I feel like you learn a lot of lessons. Even though we'll spoil everything about the movie in this conversation, it's about seeing it, experiencing it, feeling it, not really, like, knowing the intricacies of a plot. It is amazing how much gets introduced and wrapped up. I want to say up front, we start with what I think is my single favorite Kurosawa theme. I love the music of this movie. I think it's Masaru Sato's best composition. I don't think that the soundtrack in this is as good as the whole of Seven Samurai, but I think as one single piece of music, for me, the music that opens this movie, the music that closes this movie, the main Redbeard theme that is interwoven throughout is incredible. I think it really moves me. It's so deep. It just conveys a sense of caring. I was surprised by how optimistic the music sounded when I first heard it at the opening, because all I know about this movie, it's a three-hour movie that takes place in a hospital, and it's like a little bit bleak. Not that the whole movie is, but a lot of it is. The opening was like this bouncy, like, string orchestral part that was like very sweet and optimistic. And I was like, oh, I didn't expect that. And then it changes throughout the movie to reflect whatever's going on. But then by the end, it comes back. The melody comes back a few times. And yeah, it is very touching. I do think I like the Yojimbo music better because the Yojimbo music is insane (laughs) and really fun. The overall soundtrack of Yojimbo as a whole is better because it's a little bit more used and fleshed out. Like, the score doesn't appear too often. Or sometimes it does, and then it goes away really quickly. Also, he uses other existing compositions, too, in certain scenes. But yeah, so we're opening over all these shots of those uh, century-old roofs. So much of this stuff that he built isn't even used that much. There's going to be a big earthquake in this movie. It's like, the stuff that he's destroying was shown for like a minute total. And it's like, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to build. They spent a lot of time building this beautiful set and they tore it down like immediately just to have a destroyed city that was authentic. So he like doesn't tell him. He's like, all right, now we're tearing it down. <laughs> he's like throwing like roof tiles that I assume came from 19th century buildings, picking up, throwing them away. The movie starts with a pretty good, you always talk about this, he maps out the hospital very well. Because the beginning is uh, Dr. Yasumoto being showed around by Genzo Sagawa, who's like the previous doctor who wasn't a very good doctor. I think it's implied that he liked to sleep around a lot. He like definitely wanted to have sex with the Mantis, and also just like, everyone's like, we're glad he's gone, whatever. Like, no, no one hates him, but he was not the doctor that Redbeard was looking for. Literally, after we go through those shots of the roofs, we look at the gate, we're going to start at that gate, we're going to end at that gate, we're going to start the intermission at that gate. Nice little bookends, as Kurosawa loves to do. But it's literally him going through there, and they're like, oh, are you the new doctor? Oh, come on in. And then they show him all around and meet all these people. Yeah, he was like, oh, I was just here to be here for a minute. What, what? And they're like, yeah, you're staying here forever. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, we already got your stuff. You're here. We have your stuff. It's in your room. He was not happy about it. Pretty wild. It was like, what's happening to this character? What's going on? Which I think is how he felt, too. Yeah, it's a lot like last week with High and Low. It's this guy is all of a sudden being thrust into this new position where he's having all these things taken from him, quote unquote, even though he doesn't even know why it's happening or who's doing it. Yeah, I even by the end didn't fully understand what was going on there. 
I agree that it's a little hard to keep track of just because it's only in a few lines of dialogue. They keep dropping little hints about it. We learn Yasumoto's backstory throughout the movie, but the deal is he was engaged to a woman who started sleeping around while he was gone and then broke off his engagement. His father is very worried about him, and he was talking to Dr. Redbeard about that. And Dr. Redbeard had the idea, why don't you have him come work for me? This hard work will help him sort things out. When he shows up at this hospital, he's arrogant, he's rude, like, he thinks he knows everything. He thinks he's smarter than Redbeard, which he absolutely is not. Yeah, towards the end of, like, the opening little arc or whatever, where he, like, starts working, I was like, do we have any reason to like this guy? I kind of fucking hate Dr. Yasumoto. I like him by the end, for sure, but, yeah, he really is just, like, a prick at the beginning. Yeah, he's a lot like Sanshiro Sugata. He's very, like, oh, he's just kind of coming in as this dumb idiot, and by the end, he's gonna be, like, smart and respectable, and he's gonna be a major part of an institution that he wasn't part of before. Also, like Sanshiro Sugata, he's going to break all the rules yeah. of the dojo, or in this case, the hospital. I was like, ah, oh, finally. There it is. Yeah, finally. The callback to Sanshiro Sugata too. Day one, he's like, I'm just going to start drinking. I'm never going to do any of my work, and he's going to have to kick me out. I was like, I can't believe this. This is literally the same lot. Yeah. I know we keep bringing it up as a joke, but this time it's like legitimate. It's literally the same plot beat. And there's a lot of other Kurosawa movies in this, definitely. I mean, a lot of Akiru has a lot of the same types of themes. I think actually executed better. Oh, oh, yes. Also, One Wonderful Sunday, throwing it way back to the Primafune days, where it's, you know, that movie was about trying to see humanity in the poor. That's literally the thesis of this movie, is that we're all people, have goodness begets goodness, and help others. It's the only way to live a meaningful life. Basically clear from the opening scene, like, there are these poor people here, the guy showing him around, and Dr. Yasumoto both, like, don't like them. Yeah, they're like, oh, it smells in here. Yeah, like, oh, this sucks. Everyone here is poor. It was pretty obvious to me, like, by the end, he was going to have to learn to, like, love these people. And he does. Also, that reminds me of, like, the lower depths. It was from the perspective of the people, but it was finding nobility in them. Some of, like, how destitute they looked reminded me of that scene in High and Low when they went to, like, the alley. When they were just, like, walking around, and the place is just full of these poor, miserable, destitute people who are extremely sick. You know what's something I found out from reading the Don Ritchie book that I find really funny and interesting is there's this one patient that espouses a lot of the negatives about being poor in the hospital when Yasumoto first gets there. That's the exact same patient that was in Akiru that told Takashi Shimura all the bad stuff about the potential of having stomach cancer. I was like, wait a minute. That's so crazy. That's the exact same role. Yeah, I didn't catch that. That's so funny. His role is just to, like, complain and make everyone else, like, miserable. Yeah, because he's not, like, a super recognizable figure, and he's in a couple of these movies, and we see him from, like, really far away. We only get, like, two or three scenes with him, so I had no reason to think it would be the same person, especially it's been over a decade. And I'm like, wow, that's so funny that that's literally the same exact thing. And uh, he's opposite of Sahachi, who we're going to learn a lot more about later. And that's the actor from last week, the kidnapper from High and Low, who now Kurosawa lets him be a more sympathetic figure and more of a good guy, which I like. I'm glad because that guy looked so evil last time. Though I'm like, I'm glad we could make this guy look kind of sympathetic. In the hospital, you're like almost always seeing him from this like crazy foreshortened angle, like way below his chin. He just like looks insanely sick. Yeah, lit in ways that make them look even more gaunt and shadowy. A lot of shadow play in this, which actually reminds me of a lot of scenes in Kagemusha, which I'm really excited to talk about in a couple weeks. And also some stuff from Throne of Blood as well. Like when they were all lined up for dinner, there were some of the exact same types of shots in that one. This guy comes in, he, like you were saying, he was like arrogant. He says, I was supposed to be a doctor for the Shogun. He had trained at this fancy school for this cushy job. I'm sure people know people like that today. Yeah, relatable. Yeah, he's this miserable Ivy League grad comes in saying, well, what the hell do you mean I'm going to be working here? This like shithole, <laughs> like I'm supposed to be the Lord's doctor making immense money for probably doing nothing. 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to see the magistrate's doctor later, this overweight lord who is eating this crazy diet, and basically his doctor is just being his dietitian, and then they call in the real doctor when they're like, dude, you're not sick, you need to cut back on all this stuff. <laughs> Everyone in this town is poor and you're eating like a pig. Everyone keeps bringing up Redbeard. You hear his name like a bunch of times. They're like, oh, that's Redbeard's rules. Oh, that Redbeard, he's always honest. Yeah, he's real tough. They hype him up in all the dialogue before we see him. He's like, why do you call him Redbeard? And he's like, because his beard is red. Real name, Kyojo Nide, which he says in Japanese. He's like, that's eh, too tough for people to say, so just call me Redbeard. Yeah, that's pretty funny. When they finally go in his room, he turns around. Oh, boy, is that beard magnificent. Oh, it looks great. Oh, I love it. I didn't know Mufune could grow a beard like that. I can. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you've had that beard before. I recently trimmed my beard, and seeing him in this movie made me wish that I hadn't done it. I was like, oh man, I want to look like that again. That looks amazing. It lets him do his character motion for this movie, which is now uh, stroking his beard from like left to right. That's used to distinguish him, although he stands out amongst everybody as the only guy with this giant beard, so he doesn't really need to be distinguished. Yeah, the only guy older than 30, and he looks like he's supposed to be like 60. <laughs> I can't say it's the oldest he's ever looked, because uh, I Live in Fear happened, where he looked like he was 200. But he definitely looks more up in his years, especially compared to, like, Sanjiro a couple years before this, looking more weathered and tired and kind of fed up with everything, except he really cares. It's a really cool role. But yeah, we meet Redbeard, the head doctor at this hospital. He's called a dictator. He kind of runs with an iron fist, but he is a very good doctor, and he's doing absolutely everything he can to make sure everyone is getting the best treatment they can, despite the fact that this hospital has no money, way too many patients, and all the patients are dying. He'll even go to drastic measures to get his funding, like blackmailing the magistrate about the fact that he knows he has a mistress to try and get more cash out of him. He's like, oh, I shouldn't do that. Remind me if I'm ever arrogant because I did this and this is terrible. And it's like, is it really that bad? I guess not. Yeah, I was like, why do you even feel bad about it? He's not one of those bosses that just dictates. He is a guy who really gets in there and gets his hands dirty. And we'll really see that later on with the surgery. So the basic conflict for the whole movie is that Yasumoto's here and he doesn't want to be. And he's like, I'm just going to shirk my responsibilities here. I'm not going to do the job of doctor. And eventually, like Redbeard will break down. And he'll kick me out. And everyone else is like, dude, we know Redbeard. That's not going to work on him. He is not that petty. Yeah, he knows that you're not a baby. Like he knows that you're a good doctor and that you'll be able to do it. And then the next maybe 45 minutes is really like three subsequent failures on Yasumoto's part. And it's really a, the big illusion versus reality thing that we see all the time is here. It's like, this is a kid who's really book smart, but he's not street smart. He's like, I'm so smart. I've developed my own cures to diseases and stuff. Like, okay, yeah, calm down. I'm sure. But when it comes to the actual reality of being in the medical practice, he really struggles with watching people die and getting freaked out by people. I was confused. I was like, did he not see patients in medical school? The first time he sees a patient dying, he doesn't even see him die. He like almost faints. I think this is supposed to be his like post-grad education where he finally does get work in the field. I don't think that he would have been seeing like real patients. I don't think you would entrust a real life or death case to the intern. I'm just surprised by I was surprised by how surprised he was by how like really ill prepared he was for the actual role of being a doctor in this situation. I think I mean, I think it's a lot of just his arrogance. But the first failure comes at the hands of the mantis. There's this woman who's got a lot of mental trauma and she's locked in this house thing in like the herb garden. She's called the mantis because she's killed her husband. She's killed other men who have come on to her. One day, Yasumoto was ignoring his responsibilities and drunk in his room. The mantis escapes and comes in, and she singles him out for a good reason. And that reason is the fact that he's not wearing his uniform. Everyone at this hospital wears a white uniform to signify that they're a doctor so people can approach them and talk to them. But he's like, I don't want to do that. This uniform sucks. I'm going to break this rule also. But because of that, it makes him more of a target for her. 
he's doing something before that scene starts. He's talking to someone. He's talking to like the only other doctor there. Maury. Yeah, so he's talking to him. I think this is the part where he's like, Redbeard isn't going to fall for your bullshit. Why are you doing this? Well, like, why don't you wear the uniform? Why don't you do the job? Uh, he's like, yeah, whatever. I don't give a shit. I'm really just like checked out. He's like laying down, like ignoring everything. And then so he comes in and says, the Mantis has escaped. High alert. We got to find her. And they run out. And then, you know, no surprise. After he like, lays down again, she comes into the door. It's a really long, drawn-out shot. We're just seeing these two people act across each other. I think the way that she really does ensnare him in a trap is pretty genius. She goes on and tells her stories. This is the first time that we're really getting what was going to happen a lot in this movie of people monologuing and telling their life's woe. But I do appreciate that a lot of the stories are very different. I think that that's a very good strength. This is a woman who's been raped repeatedly. She seems to have pre-existing mental problems before any of that ever happened, but she is a very beautiful woman, and then that has just exacerbated a lot of those problems. So she'd otherwise be in jail, but she's instead kept in a kind of weird hospice type of place. The first instruction you get to her is he's walking through the herb garden, then he sees her screaming and like clawing at the gates to her door, which is very similar to the woman who's withdrawing from heroin in the high and low. But she's having like a total freak out. So that's how you first see her. And then she comes in here and she seems very normal at first. And she even says like, I'm not insane. Just hear me out. Please listen to my story. And then she tells her story. That statement falls apart because she does start to get more crazy as she goes. He starts like recoiling from her and then he starts approaching her. There's like this big dynamic tension between them. When he starts approaching her, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> like, how could you fuck this up this bad? Yeah, I mean, he is drunk and he's interested in her. A lot of the other guys are interested in her because they think she's very attractive. But he's like, no, I'm interested in her because I want to study her. He thinks it's a medical challenge and he thinks he's up to the challenge of it. And he's like, oh, I'm better than Redbeard and all that. But then this woman finally manages to ensnare him. Something that's really cool is that she pulls one of her arms out of her sleeves and ties it to her other arm. So it like traps her body on top of his and she pulls out a hairpin that she's used to kill. That she's used to kill three men before. So why does she still have it? I was like, okay, that's absurd, <laughs> but it works for the scene. I know. It's like, yeah, you're really going to arm her? Yeah, you're leaving her with the giant pincer hairpin that can kill a man in one blow that she has used to kill three men before. And she like kisses him and he kind of is freaking out and he sees the hairpin and tries to stop it, but she manages to nick his neck. Yeah, you go to the next scene, Redbeard's like, oh yeah, she got you in the neck, but she didn't hit your artery. And then you look at me and she's like, she bit my elbows, I think is what he says. Yeah, I think she also stabbed him, but he's like, yeah, I'm fine. And he's like very patient. He was like, you know, you were drunk. She's very attractive. Like, I don't blame you for this one. But now, you know, let it be a lesson. And that is another overriding thing is this is a movie just about patience and kindness. Redbeard is always patient with everybody that he deals with. It's a superhuman feat of patience. Even in Kurosawa films, like, very rarely is a character like this fucking noble. But it's believable for him. Just something about the way Mifune plays it. There's a lot of times where I was like, he's got to be mad now, right? The only time he ever gets mad is like off screen and it's him being mad about the funding for the hospital. This is the first time and not the last time that Yasumoto will get the patient treatment and not be the doctor, which I think is really important for him understanding the work that goes on here to kind of understand both sides, because this is a movie that's going to say like, you need to know bad in order to know good. All these people go through very bad events, but then they're able to come out on the other side of it. And now that they've known suffering, they now know how to embrace their humanity and do good for others and make themselves happy in turn. So this is the first time that Yasumoto is really seeing that. I love this next scene where he pulls out the uniform from the closet. I'm like, oh my god, is he going to put it on? He's like, finally, he's like, he's learned his lesson, but he gets called in by Mori and he puts it back. Yeah, Mori walks in and then he's like, oh, I wasn't using this. He like folds it up immediately and like throws it away. He almost caught in the act of being sympathetic and starting to do his job. But not yet, because he was caught. Yeah, but it's at least nice to know that it's crossing his mind. He's starting to lose his edge a little bit. Maybe it's just a loss of blood. And he gets another big trial with watching a man die of liver cancer. 
the specific thing here is he gets called to do something. I think up until this point, he has just said no every time he was told to do anything. But he is like, Redbeard wants you to do this. Like, go to this room. And he's like, fine. <laughs> then he goes. And then he finds Redbeard there. And Redbeard's with this dying man. And he just says, examine him. Tell me what's wrong. He's like, uh, he's dying. He's going to die really soon. He hands him a book. It's like, oh, it must be stomach cancer. It's like almost hot shot, but it's an extremely rare form of liver cancer that is undetectable until you're already about to die. So it's like set up that there's not really any hope for this man. And then Redbeard leaves. <laughs> He's like, watch him. I gotta go. Yeah, we have other patients comfort him as he dies. Like this man is about to die. We get a little bit about the man's backstory. He was like a talented craftsman. He seems like a good guy, but he just ended up poor and ended up in the situation with this cancer. He has this death rattle gargle sound that is super disturbing. It's not the only death rattle gargle that you hear in this movie. I think a really great shot that Kurosawa does where he kind of has this guy in like the bottom right corner of the frame and it's just really emphasizing the way that his mouth is moving and then Yasumoto just wants to escape it because he's so freaked out by it and he like it's just kind of cornering himself but he can't avoid it. Personally, you know, it was very like unsettling for me. And then you see on screen, it really messes Yasumoto up to the point where he can like barely walk after it. He's like, so just kind of overcome with this experience. He's really nauseous. He's like leaning on the walls. And one of the cooks comes in. There's a lot of female cooks working at this hospital as well. She's like, Redbeard needs you. They're having a surgery and they're having a lot of issues. We need you to run in. And so he's like woozy already, supporting himself, walking along the railing. He walks in and Mori and Redbeard are operating on her and she's flailing around. We don't see really what they're operating on, but there's dialogue later, like, her intestines are falling out, we need to get them back in, Redbeard's hands are really bloody. This is actually the first and only nudity we ever see in any Kurosawa movie, because she's not wearing any clothes, except for something over her eyes. He's like, hey, Yasumoto, hold her legs, she's flailing too much, we need you to hold them wide so that we, she can be more stable. I'm like, yeah, maybe you should give her a little more anesthesia. <laughs> He's like, didn't you Medicare? He's like, yeah, but it's not gonna work. I think that's the point at which I was like, oh, every other Kurosawa film has felt more or less PG-13, and this one feels R, which is not obviously anything at the time, but that's how it like felt to me. I was like, oh, this is like a little bit different than what we've had so far. I feel like a lot of these movies, they're adult, but they're not full of the darkest, seediest stuff that you really can't let teenagers see. There's rape from time to time, it's implied. It's never like graphically shown. His movies shy away from a lot of that stuff, which I like. Anyone can see this and take something from it, but this is one that's definitely a more queasy scene from Kurosawa that he doesn't do often. Yasumoto just completely passes out. I was like, are they gonna have to like stop and take care of him? I don't think they do that. I think they just finished the operation. No, I'm sure that he stayed on that floor the entire rest of that operation. <laughs> yeah, I got it. It's a really brutal scene. I was jarring. We wake up with him in the next scene. The other doctor, Mori, he's like, oh, I passed out during my first operation too. Don't worry about it. <laughs> then he's told that, like, what happened to the other guy who I was watching? Rokosuke. And then Rokosuke has died. Yasumoto wants to talk to Redbeard after that and I think kind of apologize for himself and I think acknowledge that he has learned a couple lessons. Yeah, his arrogance, I think, is toned down significantly at this point. He goes in and Redbeard is in a meeting with Rokusuke's daughter, Okuni, and she brought three children here. And so we learn now her tragic backstory and also more about Rokusuke and everything that happened to him. And it's really messed up stuff. And she's not even one of the people that's in the hospital. She's just come to try and reconcile with her father before he dies, and she's too late. Redbeard does say he died peacefully, which we know is not true at all, but he told her because that's what she needs to hear. Yeah, and it clearly is like a bomb for her. That's like another lesson. You see Yosemoto in the background going, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah, he's like, I almost passed out watching her dad die. But her mother had an affair on Rokusuke with another man, and then Okuni was forced to marry her mother's lover and have three children with him, and then he was still seeing her mother, split between a mother-daughter combo, which is just super icky. 
And she, the whole time, is like, I just didn't feel like I had a choice. Yeah, like, her mother died, and she eventually stabbed her husband. And she's like, I'm going to go to jail, and I just need someone to take care of my kids. Like, I don't really know what to do. And Rudber's like, no, you're not. You're not going to go to jail. He immediately, on the spot, fabricates a totally believable story. Like, oh, no, you're trying to protect yourself. And he had a knife, and then trying to take it away from him, he got hurt. Happens all the time. Don't even worry about it. I'll go tell the magistrate now that it's nothing to worry about. And I know things about the magistrate that I could use to make sure that you get off on. He will literally help anybody. Yeah, she's not even a patient. It's another great lesson for Yasumoto to just see. Here's how you deal with someone who isn't sick. His job is to help people. This is like really him going out of his way. It gets a little bit complicated here because both she and Sahashi are taken to like the nearby landlord who like owns the only apartments nearby. Sahashi is a pretty well-loved inmate who's helped a lot of people in his area. They don't say what's killing him. I think he's dying of tuberculosis because it's an Akira Kurosawa movie in a hospital. (laughs) He can't go too many movies without somebody getting TB. They carry him out and he eventually is like, you know, I'm gonna die. I'd rather die at home if that's okay. And they're like, okay, yeah, of course, we'll carry you home. They bring him home and then now we're gonna get a really prolonged section, but one that's really eerie and really cool. He's calling out along the way. He's being carried. He's saying, um... Like, you don't have to come all this way to see me. Like, I'll be with you soon. He's talking to Onaka, his dead wife. Yeah, he's, like, having hallucinations of Onaka. And we're like, okay, we can probably assume that's his wife. Well, the people are confused. They're like, Sahaji doesn't have a wife. Like, what are these he talking about? He's just there, like, she didn't have to come. Like, I'll see you soon. And then we learn the story. We get to his home. There's a lot of pouring rain. It's very sad. We can see all this stuff outside. A lot of people are crowding with him because they love him. And eventually, everyone heads out for a second. And it's just Yasumoto and Sahachi. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna get this guy some water. And then all of a sudden, the whole house like shakes and moves because they got hit by a landslide. That landslide uncovers a skeleton. And I love this one line he has. He's like, she's come back for me. I was like, oh my god. And he's like, yep, that's my wife. Bring everyone in here. I don't want to die with any secrets. Let me tell you my whole story. That's crazy, too. Especially, like, knowing that the wife is dead and buried right next to him the entire time for the story. is like a wild framing thing, but it makes sense by the end. So then we get this flashback sequence, which is a little unusual, but very cool. I think very well done. It's different than Kurosawa's previous flashbacks that he's done in other movies. Usually his flashbacks are really quick. Yasumoto has a quick flashback when talking with Rokusuke's daughter. He has like a quick five second flashback seeing her dying dad's face. It's like a sting of music and stuff. It's usually like quickly intercut with something else. It's more like what someone is thinking about. Here it's we're going to get a long actual scene. A little background on this guy too. Like what we've seen so far is that he is very sick at the beginning, but he's like a very humble guy. He says, you know, I don't mind these clothes. They keep us clean and I appreciate that. And he's constantly working and building stuff. Then he sells this stuff so he can buy milk and eggs for the other patients. And everyone's like always amazed by him. They're like, why is he always working? He's going to kill himself like this. And then here is kind of why he explains why. So he goes on this whole story about how he met his wife, how much he loved her, how great she was. They have like a meet cute. Yeah, with the umbrella. Most of what we see is him trying to convince her to marry him. And she's very dodgy about it. Even though she does love him, there's problems with that that she doesn't really elaborate on. Eventually, there is an earthquake that destroys his house and presumably takes her life. We get this very cool scene where he is in, like, the rubble, basically, and he's pulling these giant tiles out of the ground. Probably the actual 19th century tiles that Kurosawa got for the film. And we get to see the house get destroyed, too. That is a really big thing that, like, we've never seen anything like that. We see Kurosawa utilize nature all the time. Here's another version of nature he's never used before. Earthquakes, something that is distinctly a part of the Japanese zeitgeist, because they happen all the time. He gets to dramatize one and watch this giant building just topple over. I was wondering if that was like archival footage or something, but no, that that was real. 
at this point his wife disappears and he was like i was grateful i couldn't find her body but i I went to our family to see if they knew anything and they're like we thought she died years ago we had no idea this was even happening so he kind of accepts it for himself that she's dead and then he moves to where he lives now which is i guess the town outside the hospital for two years he's just vibing and then he sees his wife on a city street and she's carrying a baby it's near this store that's selling all these wind chimes and as soon as they make eye contact this giant breeze comes and it's this cacophonous sound of all the wind chimes going at once it's super harrowing yeah, that chime sound becomes a motif for the rest of like the entire like arc. So now she kind of has to explain herself a little bit. And she's like, I was already spoken for for another guy from my family said that he could have me. A rich guy that helps support my family when I was young. She's like, I was so happy with you. I didn't want to lose that. And then the earthquake was a sign that my time was up. I've used up all my life's happiness with you. And so now this is my chance that I have to leave. She had this feeling in the back of her head, like, I don't deserve this. I will be punished by life for getting away with this. And then she thinks she is when the earthquake happens. Next thing I knew, I was with the guy. I wandered over there. I just hid from you. And that became my life. Eventually, they part ways and he gets super depressed. And then she comes to his house. She finds his house and she apologizes to him and tells him more stuff. And then she makes him kill her. She commits suicide by him. She grabs a knife and then holds it over and she's like, can you please just hug me, hold me tight while he's like looking away. And he doesn't see the knife. Yeah, most of the scene they've spent like facing opposite directions. Yeah, it does a lot of that in this movie as well. A lot of split frames with tables or trees or just people looking in opposite directions. And then she holds the knife kind of secretly so he can't see. And then she's like, please give me like a really strong hug. Like I miss you so much. And then when he does that, he pushes the knife into her, killing her essentially instantly. And she says like, don't let go. And then we cut back to the scene where he's telling this everyone's crying. What a terrible way to make this guy feel even worse. Make him be the one that sticks the knife in. I don't think he blames himself. I don't think he blames himself, but that still sucks. In the back of his head, if he didn't make that hug, wouldn't have stabbed her. It's certainly a brutal scene. I think I cried here or some other time. I definitely cried at least once. I cried at least once and I welled up a lot in a lot of different parts of this movie. And yeah, then we cut back, as you said, everyone crying. And this is a crazy, crazy shot of him raising his arms like he's going to embrace her angel, even though we don't see it. And we get this big shadow of his arms on the wall. And then eventually they fall and we know that he's dead. And we get the wind chime still going when Yasumoto leaves. And it's not necessary to the movie. It is like the one part of the movie that above all the other ones, because it's the longest, it doesn't affect Yasumoto. It's just him learning about it but it's so beautiful and so well done that to lose it would be upsetting it would be a loss to this movie i didn't have any complaints about the scene despite the fact that it's 30 minutes and just one scene of this one guy who we hardly know i thought it was amazing you know a keystone of the film it's another episode in this red beard series of shorts yeah this is a yeah contributes to the feeling of it being episodic the next day yasumoto returns and he's wearing the uniform so i guess this is like the experience that really pushes him over the edge and makes him care about these people Other people acknowledge, they're like, oh, look at him, he's finally wearing it. All the cooks are just a fun gang of women, just like joke and laugh with each other or cry together. They do it all. And they're like, oh, look at him, there he is, (laughs) he's doing it. And then he's immediately approached by a woman with a child who's sick with measles and he points her in the right direction to get to the clinic. He's now been acknowledged by this woman and now he himself is acknowledging, oh my god, I am a doctor. He says the funniest line in the movie, which is just, Helping people? Yeah. He's like, oh, your child's measles, go to the hospital. And he just says, helping people to himself? And that was almost my screen as well, because it was so funny. I'm just standing there, like, looking confused, like, is that what I'm doing? Am I helping people? <laughs> it's funny. It's kind of dumb, but it is, yeah. Like, he's not helping himself anymore. That's what he's been doing. And eventually, he'll have a total breakdown about the fact that he's like, I'm such an asshole, essentially. I'm so arrogant. Like, oh, dumbass. 
<laughs> you're finally seeing other people exist. He's doing like outpatient rounds with Dr. Redbeard. And this is like when we learn that the funding is going to get cut. So he kind of has to like smooth over at the magistrate to get the funding or whatever. It's where we get our one Takashi Shimura appearance as well, where he's looking real old again. He's got the silver hair all tied up. They stiff him. Redbeard demands an outrageous sum of 50 Rio. And he comes out. He's like, oh, it was 30 Rio, right? And Redbeard's like, yeah. And he takes it and leaves. He gives him some attitude. He's like, so is there no difference between a good doctor and a bad doctor? Redbeard's like, I guess. He like, is it true what they say that a doctor doesn't really have any influence? Someone who's going to die is going to die. Someone who's not, it's not. Redbeard's like, yeah, whatever. He's like, yeah, you want to take that chance? He just like agrees with everything he says. He's like, oh no, I'm sorry. Have I offended you? He's like, yeah, whatever. Like doctors always have to kiss up to rich assholes like you. And then he walks away. I just love seeing Takashi Shimura and Toshiro Mifune both being so old in the same frame. So far they've come from Drunken Angel. I feel a little bad that Takashi Shimura has been cast as a villain in the past like five movies. Just constantly being like a slimeball old guy. He's been a good guy so many times and such a good guy, like in Seven Samurai and Akiru. That seems to be like a slime bag for like six movies in a row. I'm like, oh, poor guy. <laughs> I miss the good Takashi Shimura. Yeah, then you get him in the bad sleep well in Yojimbo. He looks like he could be, you know, an old guy, asshole, whatever, and he does it well. But yeah, I feel a little bad. <laughs> I'm like, oh, there he is. Yeah, this is after the meme that you talked about earlier with the magistrate where he just says, like, you can't keep eating white rice and drinking all day. You have to, like, have some actual vegetables. I'm begging you. Kurosawa truthfully nailed the medical industry where this doctor came in, did nothing, and then demanded an outrageous sum of money. So on their way back, they stop at a brothel not to actually enjoy it, but because they have a tip off about the fact that there's a 12-year-old girl there who is very sick, and they're like, we gotta get her out of here. They walk in, they're like, oh, this lady can't entertain. She's like, oh, she doesn't do it often. And he's like, she has syphilis, she can't do that. She's like, well, don't worry about it. (laughs) And then you start hearing the beating in the background, which is when we learn about Otoyo. Really, really beating this poor girl, like real tough, because she tore up a nice kimono that she was given to try and make her more attractive to men. We got the actress Haruko Sugimura showing up, who has been in a few of these from time to time. She was the mother in No Regrets for Our Youth, probably most notably, but I know her more as like a Naruse Ozu actress. But yeah, she's, oh, she's just so mean. It's so rotten. They're like, hey, we're taking this girl because she's 12 and she's incredibly sick. You've completely destroyed her psyche. She's more sick mentally than physically at this point, even though she's very physically sick. And she's like, oh, you just want her for yourself. Boys, and all these guys come in and we get a wild scene that really has no place in this movie. One of my complaints of the movie is that this is just insane. It's just like, oh, we want to give Toshiro Mifune one more fight before he stops working with Kurosawa. I don't think you can justify what happens in this scene. I just think, like, you just have to suspend your disbelief and be like, all right, whatever. What happens is Toshiro Mifune, who is supposedly like 60 or something in this movie, beats the shit out of like 12 guys all at once, including like breaking their bones out of their bodies without getting like a scratch on him. It's like a more brutal fight than Yojimbo. Yeah, outside of him being tortured, nothing in Yojimbo is more brutal than anything that happens here. He dismembers a couple people in Yojimbo. Here we get to see bones popping out of arms and legs. Everyone's like bleeding their legs, like twisted like 180 degrees around. I was like, does the hospital not have enough patients coming in? You need to create eight more? I was waiting for this scene because on Criterion Channel, this is like the little preview icon you get. And I was like, when is there a fight scene in this movie? Yeah, they want it to seem exciting. And it's exciting in a totally different way. They don't even, like, give a reason why Redbeard is capable of killing all these men with his bare hands. He doesn't kill them, but, like, why he could have killed them if he wanted to. I think he's just a master, and it's like, he probably knows how all the bones break. It's how I think of it. Because every single time he throws anybody, you hear a bone crack sound effect. Even, like, one dude that he pushes over, and you hear, like, <laughs> There's that one dude he punches in the throat. Yeah, like, destroys his vocal. He has to, like, fix it later. The guy's, like, gasping for air, and he, like, punches him again to, like, relocate his voice box or something. He beats up all these guys, and he's just like, 
Oh, how terrible. I was like, oh, I didn't have to do that. I went too far. Violence is awful. Yasumoto helped these guys. A little bit like Senshiro, where he like nearly kills someone and is like, ah, oh, whoops, damn it. Redbeard is just too much of a himbo. It was at this point where I was like, is Redbeard canonically also Sinjuro? <laughs> like later on in life? <laughs> Why is he so powerful? But whatever. I guess these are like just some bums anyway. But it was a little insane that Redbeard just breaks like 50 legs <laughs> in one scene. It was wild, but I absolutely love it. And then they take Otoyo back. As they're walking back, I think Otoyo is on Yasumoto's shoulders. And then uh, Redbeard says, she'll be your first patient. Cure her. And then intermission. What's cool too is the intermission is actually like fully scored. This was actually in the film print five minutes long. Not like, oh, we can just make the arbitrary intermission however long we want or however short we want. I actually waited for the entire thing to finish and I was like, oh shit. Well, how could you resist? The music is so good. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is nice. As any intermission does, it kind of splits up the movie. The second half will now be mostly about the story of Yasumoto trying to cure Otoyo. Kurosawa introduces a little bit of a frame story device because Yasumoto has a journal of all the days that he's taking care of this girl. So it kind of goes day by day and talks about the things that he did. He can't get her to take her medicine. Redbeard comes in and he's very patient with her. She slaps it into his face like five times and he doesn't get mad. He just lets it happen and he just does it again and again until he finally airplanes it into her mouth. And that, like, fixes her fever. Like, on day one, she's just, like, staring at Yasumoto. And he's like, this is freaking me out, honestly. Like, I can't even talk to her. He could barely put his hand on her forehead to feel her fever. By the time Redbeard gets to her, and she is, like, talking a little bit. She's asking why she isn't being beaten. She only knows human cruelty. She's never been treated nice once in her life. She's been abused by men and women. So she's like, so Redbeard, like, really actually wants to care for me? And he says, uh, yeah. And then she's like, wait, do you too? And he says yes, and as he says that, he's holding out her food bowl. Then she just, like, flips it up and, like, shatters the food bowl, and she's like, what about now? And instead of getting angry, he just starts crying. Because he's like, oh my god, you poor girl, like, you really just don't believe that anyone could be good to you. It's really sad, and if that had happened earlier in the movie, he would have flipped out. It's a nice little vibe check for Yasumoto to be like, he's already changed a lot as a character because he would absolutely not take that shit in the beginning of this movie. And then the next morning, she's gone. And I love this scene, too. It is another moment that almost makes me cry just because it's so sad, but so pure. She's gone out, and then now she's begging for money on this one bridge. Yasumoto sees her because he's been looking for her, and he doesn't approach her because he's curious to what she's going to do. She was in a hospital. She was being fed. She didn't go far. She could easily be caught. So why is she here? And then he sees her take some money that she gets, and then she goes and buys something, and he doesn't see what it is. And he finally calls her name, and it freaks her out, and she drops something, and you hear it shatter. And it was a new bowl to replace the one that she broke. And it's like, oh my god. And then she finally breaks down and cries, and it's something that needed to happen. She kind of needed to hit that breaking point so she could start recovering. That's a thing that happens in a lot of Kurosawa movies. Falling down to your knees and hitting this low. And Yasumoto, too, he's so moved by that. He's like, I didn't need you to do this. I didn't tell you to do this. If it sounded like I wanted you to do this, I didn't. And I apologize for that. It's my fault. You're so fine. You're the one who's suffering. You don't need to worry about this. I just want you to get better. Yeah, so then he goes to Redbeard and he, like, hands in this report. You've seen him writing. And then you notice he, like, looks kind of like shit here. <laughs> he uh, is, like, really pale. He's yeah. sweaty. Oh, uh, yeah. Hard to miss. First, you're like, oh, whatever, I guess he's just really tired. And Redbeard's like, you, you seem tired, you should get some rest too. And then he just starts, like, breaking down and freaking out. He's like, I'm such a piece of shit, I'm such an asshole, I'm so arrogant. Like, I came in here thinking I knew everything, and I'm the worst. I'm so fucked up. It's literally when you haven't slept, because he clearly hasn't been getting a lot of sleep, it said he hasn't slept much since Sahachi died. you just like, dude, stop talking, you're overthinking everything, just go to bed, you're fine. Yeah, then he grabs his forehead, and he's like, wait, this man has, like, 104 feet. <laughs> 
So Yasumoto is now as sick as one of his patients. Yasumoto once again becomes the patient, and this time, Otoyo is now taking care of him. She acts as a sort of pseudo-nurse. Redbeard considers that to be part of her recovery. He's like, she doesn't know how to love people. She doesn't know how to take care of people. Maybe this will help as well to have her now take care of you because she is developing an attachment. She's actually developing a jealousy for Yasumoto. And remember, she's just a kid. She's 12 years old. She doesn't know too much about this kind of stuff. She gets very obsessive. Yeah, essentially a montage of her like changing his bandage, tucking him in, like putting his hair out of his forehead so she can put the bandage on. When it snows, she scoops the snow into the water bucket to make it colder. And you know, he slowly gets better. He's like in and out of consciousness all the time. He says that his memories of everything that happens is kind of hazy, but he acknowledges like, you took care of me, you did a great job. And then she really starts becoming a part of the clinic. She starts working with the women in the kitchen. Then we kind of focus on her a little bit more. It kind of shifts gears a little bit because she's in the kitchen. <laughs> it's really funny the way that all of a sudden this pot slowly starts descending from the roof on a string and lands in the food and like scoops some stuff up and then slowly moves its way back up. And it's this little cute kid Chobo who's actually a very good child actor. Yeah, an amazing child actor. I was like, how is this kid doing any of this? 10 minute long takes. At one point he's like dying and he really seems like he's dying while still giving like a good heartfelt performance. He's going to be in a lot of Kurosawa's later movies too. He's going to show up a couple more times. We'll see him next week in Dodeskaden. His name is Trobo and he is a little neighborhood thief. It's kind of implied he is stealing because he doesn't have enough to eat. Yeah, he's saying my brothers are so hungry that they're still sucking on their thumbs even though they're older than me. And Atoyo kind of realizes this immediately upon seeing him. She sees that the kid's stealing and just kind of looks away, looks back to her work and doesn't do anything. And then all the other women come and they start freaking out. They're like, oh, the rat thief is here. I hate that rat. They keep calling him a rat. He escapes, runs around, back in, takes the pot. And she goes looking at him but ignoring him, like consenting to him leaving. And then he runs away. Friend's like, I can't believe this. Atoyo let the fucking thief steal her food. And then Redbeard, always the wisest, is like, yeah, she did that because she cares. She understands what was going on. This is part of her developing kindness. And later on, one of the cooks and Yasumoto will kind of eavesdrop on those two kids talking. And Chobo thanks Otoyo for letting him steal food. And he gives her candy that he stole. She's like, listen, I appreciate this. I don't want you to be a thief. It's better to be a beggar than a thief. I'll accept this. And now I'm going to give it back to you. Go share it with your brothers. And if you come at night, I can give you some leftover rice so you can share. Like, stop stealing. I'll actually, I'll bring some to you. Which makes the lady who was overhearing it cry. It's a whole nother scene that also just like hits me in the chest. It's just like, oh my god, she's starting to now learn to care for other people. And Yasumoto is like so proud. Yasumoto is becoming like her pseudo father. The cook breaks down and cries because she's like, I've been so cruel. I'm mad that this kid is hungry and stealing food because the alternative is like dying. And they work in a hospital. They're meant to help people. And so they try to give Otoyo extra rice or like say like, oh, you eat too much. We need to save this. Yeah, she's trying to give Otoyo extra rice and someone else like starts taking more. She's like, no, you can't have any extra. You take too much. Very like clearly like acting up. But no one else knows why because they didn't see what just happened. <laughs> the woman at this point like starts to really care for Otoyo with good reason. And uh, I do too. She's like really has this wonderful transformation. Yeah, they start accepting her as one of their own. Kin, the woman who runs the brothel, comes back to try and get Otoyo back. And they're like, no, she's one of us now. And they start beating her with rashes. I love how Redbeard has like no respect for like authority or institutions. He was like, you can just fuck straight off. He's like, we're not giving her back. And then the woman starts to beat her up and he just does nothing. He says to her, he's like, if you touch her, she'll become rotten because anything you touch will like. like, you're so evil that anything you touch will go rotten. And she was like, you, you, you even like smell awful. She's like, I don't smell anything. He's like, yeah, because your nose is rotten too. <laughs> really brutal. Really funny. I wrote in my notes, I was like, why is Redbeard absolutely roasting this woman? And then they beat the shit out of her and then she runs away. Really wonderful scene. The cook's looking out for Otoyo. 
I think Toyo might start wearing the kimono at this point. She is gifted a kimono by Mase, which is the younger sister of the woman that cheated on Yasumoto, who is now developing feelings for him. She's been appearing every once in a while. You don't really know too much about it. She keeps trying to apologize on behalf of her older sister Chigusa, and he just keeps saying no, like, fuck off. It's like a subplot that becomes important at, like, the very end of the movie. But you know it's always been there. It's just, like, my attention is usually on other stuff. She's just another really kind soul, and Otoyo is definitely jealous because she knows that Masai likes Yasumoto and she wants him all to himself. Not in a romantic way, again, she's 12, but it's just like a brotherly or fatherly thing, and she's not used to having attention, so now she doesn't want to have any of it go away. Once Masai sees Otoyo's ruined kimono, she gives her one of her old ones that she fixes up and she throws it in the mud, but later on she pulls it out and starts wearing it. There's a lot of characterization and character development through clothing in this movie, which I like. Some of it's a little obvious, like, she acts that way because she's jealous, and then the next scene is like, I think she was jealous. I was like, yeah. We hit the last real patient story in this movie, which is going to be Chobo. His family learns that he's a thief, and they're so horrified. Yeah, the next scene is like, Toyo comes to give Chobo food. She's like, oh, I made rice balls for you today, and I'm wearing, like, my pretty new kimono, whatever. She shouldn't say that, but that's what's happening. And then he's like, oh, I, I, I don't need them. I'm actually going away. We're going to someplace new, some beautiful place far off. You've never heard of it. And she's like, wow, does that place exist? He was like, yep, and we'll have plenty of food and don't even worry about it. We all feel pain. There's a lot of birds that we'd never seen before. I was like, even at 12, I think I would know that this guy's talking about the fact that they're going to commit suicide. I think Chobo knows, but he's hiding it from Otoyo. I think he says, I'm sorry for lying in the next scene. As the audience, you can tell there is no real place. They are going to die. You don't know why yet, though. But you learn in the next scene, they're like, Trouble's entire family is here. They've all just drank poison. His two brothers do die, for real. Yeah, the two brothers are dead. Otoyo is absolutely horrified by this, and the cooks are the ones taking the kids out, and they're like, don't worry, it's not Chobo. This woman kind of makes, like, an off-color line where she's like, how weird, like, a rat drank rat poison. I'm like, are you really gonna call that right now? Maybe that's something for us film analysts to talk about. I don't know if that's the right place or the right time to be saying that kind of thing. Both of the parents ostensibly survive. They get it all out of their system, I think. Chobo, it's like it's out of his system, but he might still lapse and die. He looks like he's dying at one point. He's really, really on the edge. He looks terrible. All because they said, like, we're so ashamed to have a thief in the house. Yeah, they're already a destitute family. I think they he might have, like, gotten in trouble with the law. I think it's because of the candy that Otoyo sent him home with. The fact that he clearly stole that. He just says I got caught stealing again. I don't know. At which point the mother is like, why aren't you letting him die? Like, we took this poison. We all agreed this is for the best. The kids agreed. Yeah, I'm sure they had tons of say in it. And this is when trouble starts hyperventilating. And then all of a sudden you hear screaming in the background. This like very weird sound. And if you were watching me watching this movie, you would see crying. (laughs) What you learn is that the cooks are screaming into the well, hoping to like keep his spirit up from the dead, like to drag it from the earth. They believe that this well goes to the bottom of the earth and that they can pull a soul that's lost back from the depths. Something about the way that they scream it that's just so gut-wrenching. It's almost musical. It's like very strange. It's very pretty though. It's a magical moment and spoiler, it'll have my favorite shot in it. I'll I'll elaborate on it more later because I don't understand how it's done. It's incredible. I saw that. I was like, that's impossible. From the first time I saw this movie, I have never forgotten that shot because it blew my mind. Fortunately, Chobo does live, and then we kind of jump ahead a little bit, and Yasumoto is at home, and he's getting ready for his wedding. Clearly not into it. He's not super excited about it. There was a scene earlier where Yasumoto did go home because his mom had a little relapse of her palsy, and she kind of makes a note like, oh yeah, you know, you do look a little bit different. You don't look like you were sick, you just look like you took a bath. It is like, yeah, this guy has had a baptism. 
he's become reborn as a new person and now it's evident to his mom her boy is starting to become a man and now it's happening again later at the end with the wedding scene and I laugh out loud when the door finally opens and they let in the bride the bride's parents and then Yasumoto's parents when Shishu Ryu is there making another weird cameo appearance I thought for sure that he was going to be Masae's father and I was like oh my god he brought him straight from another Ozu movie once again reprising his role as the dad whose daughter is getting married and he's sad about it but it's actually the other way around I was like I've never even seen it happen like this before I didn't recognize him at all at first, and then he says, like, one line, and immediately I was like, oh my god, it's him. And they're like, so we have news for you. You have gotten the role that you wanted. You can now be the magistrate's doctor in March. And he says, no, I want to stay here. Masai, do you still want to get married? We're going to be poor forever. (laughs) Redbeard's, like, in the back, like, getting mad. Because Yasumoto is still kind of a dumb kid, and he's messing up the wedding ceremony, sitting on the wrong side. Yeah, yeah, he's, like, speaking when he shouldn't. And then we end much as we began with them at the gate. And he's like, let me stay. And he's like, you shouldn't stay. You're an idiot. He's like, you made me this way. You made me stubborn. You showed me the road. I have to take it. He's like, you'll regret it. He's like, no, I won't. He's like, I'll say it one more time. You will regret it. End. (laughs) And then we fade out on the shot of the gate. And it's another two or three minutes as the final musical overture plays of the theme three different times, each time stronger than the last Oh my god, I'm like clapping. I just love it so much. My only real criticism of it is just that there are some lengthy detours, but it's all flavor. It's like a seasoning. I don't need the seasoning, but it's nice. It makes this whole even better, I feel like. It's just the structure is more loose than I think we're used to for Kurosawa. Kurosawa demonstrates his ability here to carry multiple character arcs really, really well. I feel like in other movies, like Yojimbo, we kind of see him do that at once. We see multiple character arcs intertwining and going at the same time, kind of at the same pace. Whereas here, we're kind of getting a full character arc and then another full character arc and then another full character arc. It is like full character arcs, but like at the end of one will be a little bit about another one. I thought it was wonderful. My big thing was just a few parts that I thought were like a little obvious or a little strange. I really like the part where Redbeard beats the shit out of those guys, but I was like, come on, like this is getting into like fantasy (laughs) that he would just be able to shatter all their bones, (laughs) like his bare hands up, breaking a sweat, whatever. And the part where she was jealous and then they spent like a whole scene being like, she was jealous. Everyone's like, oh my God, she was jealous. I'm like, yeah, I know. That happens like twice with various things where something will happen and you'll know what's going on and then they'll tell you. I'm like, okay, yeah. Very good movie. Wonderful, beautiful movie. I thought all the stuff that was supposed to be touching was. A beautifully shot movie. The thing that is a shame, not well preserved, or at least on the Criterion channel. I agree. I have the DVD of it. It's not even available on Blu-ray. This movie is begging for a Blu-ray release. Even on DVD, it's still so pretty. Yeah, I'm watching. I'm like, this is very obviously extremely beautifully shot and so badly preserved. Like, it looks kind of shitty and blurry, but I know that's all the film degrading. It has nothing to do with the way it was shot. It was shot, like, perfectly. So it needs, like, a really good restoration. Kind of like Drunken Angel, actually, bringing it back to Mifune's first. It's like, that's a movie that is really beautifully shot, but the way that we get to see it isn't that nice. It could be better, but it just isn't. I wonder why no one's restoring this one. It's, like, such a classic. I guess it's really long, which makes the restoration process so much harder. Every month when Criterion releases its new list of Blu-rays coming out, I always hope that Redbeard is on there in particular because I really, really want a Blu-ray of it. It just deserves it. It's like Spine 157 or something, so it was fairly early on. When I pulled in the DVD, it has the old Line logo. It's not even the spinning C. Yeah, they knew it was good. This movie's been widely accepted as amazing for a long time. It's simultaneously one of the highest rated and most underrated of Kurosawa, which I find weird. You can't say it's underrated because everyone's like, oh yeah, that's definitely amazing. I just haven't seen it. 
but it is, again, wonderfully shot. My shot was the shot into the well, because it's just so crazy. The camera is already in the well, looking up at the women who are yelling Chobo's name down, and then it tilts all the way down and looks straight into the bottom of the well, and you see the reflection of the women in the bottom of the well, and you don't see the camera. And I have absolutely no idea how you don't see the camera. It's in the well. I'm like, this is blowing my mind. It's crazy. And then I think a tear drops from probably Otoyo and it ripples the water in the well and you don't even see a reflection of the camera in that. It just is crazy. And it's, I think, at the emotional climax or one of them of the movie. There's something about the way that that one shot is done. It's always stuck with me. Gosh, it is so beautiful and so technically interesting and crazy. I've never seen another shot like it. That shot reminds me of something from a Tarkovsky film, the film Ivan's Childhood, and so does my shot. <laughs> also reminds me of a different shot from Ivan's Childhood, so maybe uh, Tarkovsky saw this movie. My shot is not quite as technically significant, but I just thought it was very cool. Mine is in the aftermath of the earthquake, when Sahaji is looking for his wife, and he's like ripping up this stuff and pulling stuff out of the ground. It starts with him just like coming in through the smoke and eventually like zooms into just his body surrounded by rubble. So there's no horizon line. I've said before, I really like shots with no horizon line. I kind of like the way they like interrupt the normal sense of space and everything. And he's just surrounded by like rubble. There's like huge wooden bars going around and they look, they're stabbing him essentially from the back. The shot just reflects the moment. Yeah, I could definitely see the Ivan's childhood shot like that. Also reminds me of the one from I Live in Fear when the factory burns down. Now, as we start wrapping up this show, we must, for the last time, do the Toshiro Mifune hotness scale. And he's looking good in old age, baby. I'm reserving my 10 for when he's playing the Sanjiro character in the Hidden Fortress, but he's so close with that beautiful red beard and being the wise old man. Still super tough, beating the shit out of guys and breaking their bones. I'm giving him a 9.9. I am very close to agreeing fully. I'm going to give him a 9.8. He is very old. He, like, is supposed to be hot in other films. Not quite so. In this one, I think he's supposed to be respectable. Still looks great. The beard looks so good. I love it. It's a shame that this is the last one with him. It's a shame that it wasn't in color, because I want to see how red that beard is. I was like, does Toshiro Mifune have, like, red beard hair? Some guys just have that, even though they have black hair. Like, is that real, or is that, like, a coincidence, or is that just the movie thing? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, maybe it was never red at all, but they could just say it was, because it was going to be in black and white. Yeah, my beard actually grows, like, reddish, brownish hairs, despite the fact that I have very dark hair. For the last time, we've objectified this extremely hot man. This amazing man in the titular role, but not in the starring role of Redbeard. For my overall ranking, it is a back-to-back with high and low 10 out of 10 movie for me. I just find it unbelievably impactful and moving and makes me just believe in the goodness of people, which is so tough to do, especially now. I think it's better than Akiru. I think it does what Akiru does even stronger, which is surprising considering that it's even longer than it, but I think it doesn't have that structural problem that Akiru does, and I still get the same emotion. The life is brief scenes might be stronger than any one scene in this movie, but I think the overall whole of Redbeard is stronger than Akira. I think it's stronger than almost every movie that Kurosawa's made. I think it's a fantastic film to end this 16 film collaboration on. It really is the end of phase two of Kurosawa for how we're kind of going through these, and it's wonderful. It really is one that everyone should see. I think it will always stay with you. I definitely thought it was this really beautiful, wonderful film. I really liked it. I think I want to see it again. There's just so much going on, and it is a little bit weird in its episodic nature that like it's hard to get a sense of it as a whole on just one watch. I think if I watched it again, I would probably give it a 10 easily. I do feel like I want to give it a 9 this time. Just for having trouble grasping a hole out of the strange kind of structure. I want to give it like a 9.5 or whatever. It's somewhere in between a 9 and a 10. 
I understand that. I've seen this twice now, and I definitely had more of what you're feeling on my first time, where I was like, oh, it's hovering a little bit in between, but I think it's so good that I'll give it the 10. And then this time I watched it and I was like, this is firmly a 10. No question about it for me. I do think that on your second time that you would give it a 10. No, I, I absolutely, I agree too. Also, you know, it's a big complicated film. It's three hours. We saw it in the middle of the day on a Sunday when it was kind of busy today, even though I don't watch it straight through. I definitely want to see it again. Amazing movie in any case. Definitely one to be in the mindset for, to be very receptive to. It's not as easy of a watch as Yojimbo or something. Although, again, it really does fly by for me. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I wasn't bored at all. So with that, we now say goodbye to Toshiro Mifune, one of the greatest actors ever. Very upset about it. And so the details of Kurosawa and Mifune kind of splitting or breaking up are very unclear. It's one of the great mysteries in the cinema world. I've tried my best to try and gather information about what exactly it is. It seems to be a multitude of factors. According to an interview with Martin Scorsese, he really just says, I think they got everything they could out of each other. 16 films, what more could either of them do for one another? But one big consistent thing seems to be that because of the two years that it took to make this movie, and because Mifune had to keep this red beard the whole time, he wasn't able to really work on anything else except this movie, so he had to turn down a lot of work and it kind of hurt him financially for a while. Yeah, and he's like a big star at this point, so it's probably tough. And this movie actually was a big hit. It made a lot of money. It was very, very popular, which you wouldn't expect for this type of film, especially at three hours. You know, it recouped a lot of the losses, but it still definitely annoyed him. And Kurosawa kind of felt betrayed when Mifune started taking other roles on like television or in America. It felt like there was some bitterness between the two of them. Also, on a more practical note, Kurosawa is going to have a lot of trouble finding funding in the latter third of his career. And Mifune is a very expensive actor. Because Kurosawa made him, yeah. I'm not totally sure about this, but I've heard that one of Kurosawa's scriptwriters, Hideo Oguni, thought that Mufune's performance in Redbeard was all wrong, which I find very surprising. I don't know how else you would play this role, but I think that Kurosawa entertained that a bit and that pissed off Mufune. It's all a lot of hearsay. They never really gave solid reasons for it. You know, they're both dead. It's not really in his autobiography or even in the Mufune, The Last Samurai documentary I watched. They don't go into too much detail on it. No one's really sure. Yeah, and I don't think it's something that we have to be allowed to know. Maybe it's just not noble to us. It's something between them. That's fine. It's not like they didn't get everything they could. They got enough out of it to justify it. It's very sad to know that that is the way that it ended. Even though, like, apparently Mafune attended the premiere of Kage Musha in 1980, and he never was even considered for that role, yet he really would have been perfect for it. Tatsuya Nagadai does a great job in it, but Mafune really would have been the one to cast in it. It's just tragic that that's kind of the way it ended up, and both these men kind of took their relationship to their graves. It seems like at least they weren't, like, totally estranged from each other. They, you know what, they left behind amazing work. They are a legendary combo. I mean, I would argue probably maybe the single best director-actor combo ever, but I might be a little biased in that. Yeah, they're almost synonymous. So rarely do director-actor combos last that long and have so many great films in them. It's tough to beat. Part of it is, I think, Kurosawa is very aware of the actors that he chooses for the roles and how they relate to, like, his whole filmography. Not crazy about it, but you get that impression. And Kurosawa, you know, he's loyal to his guys, but he also will drop them. He is a onset dictator. You know, he's a man who knows what he wants and demands it. You know, maybe after 16 films of dealing with it, maybe it was a little tough. Yeah, Mifune is this immense star who can do whatever the fuck he wants. He doesn't really need to be pushed around by <laughs> Kurosawa anymore. Both of these guys will have careers for decades to come, but this is the peak of both of them. They were never better separate than they ever were together. 
but both of them will have great stuff outside of each other. It will just never hit maybe the exact same highs. Yeah, this is like the high period of both of their careers. Following this, Kurosawa's output is going to be a lot less frequent. We've been getting these movies every one year to every two years for the most part. More or less going to be every five years for the next couple movies. And then at the end, he's going to pick up and make a couple more in a more rapid succession. Some of these next films are going to be really big. Some of them are not. It's really just that he has difficulty financing when he needs such huge budgets. He's kind of on the decline a little bit, although I do think that he has some late masterpieces in them. I don't know if Dodeskaden is one of them, but we're going to watch it and review it next week. And I have not seen it. I'm very excited. This is the first new Kurosawa for me in a very, very long time. So I'm excited to check it out. I'm excited to see the color. A lot to look forward to. I really like a lot of his later works. It is its own piece. I think we will definitely see that Kurosawa's mindset is a little bit different than it is, especially in Redbeard. Looking forward to entering phase three, post-Mifune. Join us next week for Dodeskaden.